I'm Chris Biddle and this is episode 67 of Inside AgriTurf. Hello, thanks for joining me. You know, over the past decade or so, the rate of dealer acquisitions and mergers has rapidly gathered pace. Some might call it supply chain optimization. We call it consolidation. Now, until the turn of the century, all manufacturers had a relatively stable dealer network. And then in 2002, John Deere announced its Dealer of Tomorrow program in the US, which was then rolled out to a wider dealer network in 2011. In many ways, of course, it was easier for Deere, with its single brand, to act as the catalyst for inevitable change, and other manufacturers were soon to follow suit. Farms were getting bigger, margins under pressure, dealers getting older, and the funding required to run a dealership was increasing. Technological advancements were coming on stream rapidly. All these factors impacting on almost exclusively family-owned businesses where succession and the next generation may or may not be interested in continuing the family legacy. But whilst we talk about consolidation, We didn't really know the extent, nor the detail of what is happening out there in dealer land. Until now, that is. Recently, uh, the Farmers Weekly published an extensive report which ranked UK's largest farm machinery dealers by turnover. It was a mightily impressive piece of research, painstakingly compiled for the Farmers Weekly by freelance machinery journalist Peter Hill the winner of prestigious British Guild of Agricultural Journalists Awards in 2019 and 2020. So I'm delighted to say that Peter joins me today to tell me more about what was involved. So Peter, first, many congratulations on what is a terrific snapshot of the present shape of the dealer network. Well, first of all, thanks for those kind words. Um, It it was a bit of a labour of love, as it turned out. I thought it was going to be fairly straightforward because I'm familiar with a lot of the the, the dealers and the networks and so on. Um, But, of course, when you then start getting into the nitty-gritty, you find that it all takes rather longer and, and did involve a lot of research. But I just found it really interesting because, as far as I'm aware, it's not something that's been done before. Um, I put forward the suggestion to Farmers Weekly, having previously compiled articles on, for example, the uh, top 15 uh, European agricultural equipment manufacturers and also top 15 UK ag equipment manufacturers in previous years. And it occurred to me that we are experiencing over the last, what, 10 years or so, probably the biggest uh, period of dealer consolidation uh, re, um, rearrangements of uh, leading manufacturer territories and that sort of thing, and that it was worth having a look at just to see what that resulted in in terms of scale of dealers. So you had a, a kind of template to work to. Um, was it all desk research or did you have to go to dealers individually to fill in some of the gaps? Well, happily, the internet is a wonderful thing for my work. <laughs> it makes a change of going to the library that, that we used to do in the, what should we call them, the olden days. I suppose so. I suppose so. Um, no, it was great, really, because um, basically it, it all started with uh, sitting down and making a list off the top of my head 
which after a short while I realised wasn't going to be the most reliable way of putting together a definitive list. Um, so then I went to the company's house website. Um, and unusual, unusually for any industry, you know, the UK is very open about company results. Frustratingly, you can't easily get the same sort of information in, from other European countries, although you can get it if you know where to look. Uh, and it's absolutely impossible in North America, which, of course, is a, a massive and very interesting market. Um, unless they're public companies, uh, there's absolutely no access to company information. So anyway, I, I, I started drawing up a list from my, the top of my head of, uh, of dealers who I thought would qualify. Then, as I say, it, it occurred to me that probably wasn't the most reliable way. And so then I had to go on to the manufacturer's website and to their dealer locators, um, really to run through and an, in the end, I looked at about, uh, well, approaching 200 uh, farm machinery dealerships because I was terrified of missing somebody, <laughs> basically. And, and that was very useful, albeit you know, time-consuming. So having got my list, I then would go onto the company's house website and uh, basing it on the 2020 broadly trading year uh, meant that all the companies had filed their results by then. And so that gave me the means of comparison for the scale of the different businesses. How, how difficult was it to compare like with like? Because dealers, obviously, they, they vary and some have got um, grass machinery divisions and some have got construction divisions and some have got other divisions which uh, feed into their business and, and some own farms, Tuckwell's own farm and Doe's own a farm. I'm not sure whether they include their uh, their farming activities in their figures, but but it must be very difficult to try and compare like with like, was it? Uh, to some extent, I suppose that's true, Chris. Um, my ideal scenario was going to be that I would focus on purely the agricultural equipment, but very rapidly realise that these larger dealerships have indeed become so much more diverse in terms of what they're doing. Uh, that I concluded that really I just had to compare the overall business, you know, which which I think is quite relevant anyway. But having said that, there were a number of companies that actually in their management reports uh, separate out the agricultural business and maybe the construction equipment business if they do that, and indeed grounds care, as you mentioned. Um, and some other dealers with diverse portfolios were good enough to respond to my email inquiries um, when I asked them what the scale of their agricultural machinery business was compared with the group as a whole, and, and they were very cooperative with that. How long, I should have asked you at the outset, but how long did this whole project take you? <laughs> Far too long <laughs> on, a, on a cost-effective basis, I have to say. Um, you know, Farmers Weekly are, are, are quite uh, generous with their fee payments but i really ought to be putting in for a bit of extra for this one i was and then of course you've got the the a looming deadline which i had um but all this took place uh, sort of through january when i have a bit of a quieter period with deadlines anyway but it did end up um with me disappearing from my lady wife in the evening and upstairs to the computer to research yet another name that i'd suddenly thought of out the top of my head um so yeah it did take quite a long time to put together 
but it also became a really interesting uh, project uh, that I, I, I enjoyed imagine. doing. Yeah, I, I can imagine a, a welter of um, post-it notes posted around your leg, or was it? Was it more uh, scientific than that? Uh, well, I'm not sure. It's very scientific. But basically, it was a spreadsheet um, that I started compiling. So there was the sort of original list of the dealer companies, uh, and then separating out those. Uh, that were not of a scale that they had to provide uh, full accounts, so with the turnover, which is obviously the key figure for comparison. Um, uh, uh, with uh, uh, the main list or the growing growing list of companies that uh, I think it's around about £10 million turnover, you then have to submit full accounts with the turnover figure. Um, and within those management reports, uh, it includes things like um, the number of employees, uh, which, again, is a sort of measure of scale. Mm. Uh, and the, for the most part, the management report sections, which sometimes it, you know, can be very bland and tell you absolutely nothing at all. Uh, but these, I found, were quite illustrative of what the company was aiming to do and in uh, you know, where it's appropriate how the business had gone, which sections of the business, if they were quite diverse, had done better than others or whatever, um, and also in terms of their acquisitions or you know uh, allocations of new territory, which um, which was moving them forward. You must have dreaded the latest uh, press release coming in saying that uh, a big green, green tractor company had bought Tinkerbell farm machinery or whatever, <laughs> um, because then you had to uh, – um, not necessary because I, I noticed that you've you've actually not included those after that year end, but that actually added them as a as an addendum as a note. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that that was um, well. I mean, you know, more grist to the mill. If that was the news that was coming in, that actually strengthened the story in a way. Um, but uh, yes, no, you're absolutely right. I, I started off putting the two figures together. Um, but then I thought, well, actually, two and two don't always make four, does it? So um, I decided that for the purposes of uh, fair comparison to quote the 2020 turnover figure. But then you'll see that with some of them, there's a figure in brackets alongside, which is the combined figure of any acquisitions that have made uh, subsequent to the 2020 year end. Um, and I think that adds... Um, more interest <laughs> and, and maybe provides an opportunity to sell a follow-up to Farmers <laughs> Weekly next year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when, uh, when, you know, when we can see if the projected figures that I've put in for the combined businesses um, actually came to fruition. Were there, Peter, were there any sort of real surprises as you were undertaking this, this research that um, you, you had a view of what it would look like, but were there, were there surprises that emerged as you were doing all the work? Uh, yes, there were to some extent. Um, obviously, I you know I wasn't fully aware of the scale of some of the businesses. Um, some were a bit smaller than I imagined in terms of turnover, uh, and some were significantly larger than I'd imagined. Also, and perhaps uh, one of the most striking ones, I have to say, was uh, Chandler's uh, farm equipment. Uh, their existing business was larger than I'd realised. And then the impact of them acquiring the Agco business of uh, Lister Wilder Group uh, and what that does for the scale of the business, um, I hadn't, again, realised that because no figures have been published as such beforehand. 
Um, but in their accounts, Lister Wilders have very helpfully separated out the figures for their uh, agco business, which they were dispensing with, and the ongoing business with Kubota. Um, so that was useful detail. That, that was an interesting uh, story, shall I say, because I understand, uh, if, if truth be told, and, and, and if the information coming out of both companies and the associated companies, is that this was a, an arrangement agreed uh, between the two dealers rather than necessarily being uh, manufacturer-forced or, or, or suggested. Now, that was the story. Um, I just happened to be doing a, a podcast with uh, David Hart on the very day that it was announced and, and actually completed it and had to go back to him the following day and say, hey, you didn't tell me about this. <laughs> and, uh, How mean of him not to tell well, you. Well, <laughs> it was really, but there was obviously an embargo on the press release. But um, yeah. that, that was an interesting one. And you mentioned, uh, and, and I guess also a similar kind of scenario with HRN in Scotland as well, who uh, for various reasons had to change from uh, the John Deere uh, to Kubota. Yes, that's that's correct, and uh, uh, I, I think it's quite uh, an interesting point. Maybe that um, uh, Kubota have now got two quite substantial dealerships um, covering, obviously, the agricultural side plus grounds care and um, uh, and light construction equipment. Um, they're certainly you know two dealers within, shall we say, the top forty um, of uh, you know dealerships of scale. Um, on which basis, Chris, I thought it might be quite interesting just to have a look in, into that a bit more. And, and amongst the, the top 15 that was uh, profiled in the Farmers Weekly article, uh, Deer are slightly ahead um, with um, uh, six uh, dealer businesses of that scale and uh, CNH and Agco uh, with four each. And if you then extend that, um, because I included a list of um, the, the sort of biggest of the rest, if you like, which I thought was was relevant. And um, if we look at around about 40 dealerships in total, it's actually quite evenly distributed in the sense that um, Agco have about 10 dealers uh, in that grouping, CNH 10, Deer 11, and, uh, and then Class um, 7, 7 uh, outlets. So I think there's, you know, that's quite an interesting bit, uh, and it also struck me that um, with JCB, with uh, you know, with nine of those dealerships, not exclusive, obviously, but it shows the strength of the JCB um, uh, franchise, if you like, within the dealership networks. And of course, if we're talking again about individual dealers, a similar scenario, although with a di different supplier, uh, would have impacted on on shamans wouldn't it because uh, they uh, had to switch from john deere to uh, case didn't they and uh, yes that's, that's, I, I mean this it's an interesting situation isn't it because uh, the scenarios are different um, a lot of the uh, the route by which these uh, businesses have become so large is through amicable acquisitions and it might be that a smaller dealership uh, has no succession, no family who want to continue it. That's one scenario. Um, another is that maybe they can see the writing on the wall and that they're not going to achieve the level of business that their suppliers would like them to do. 
And so you grasp an opportunity to sell your business in that in that situation. Equally, of course, there's the more painful scenarios where the manufacturer chooses to shift their territory to somebody else. Um, and as you and I, I think, both know, farmers really don't like that situation where they're suddenly faced with having to choose between sticking with the product that they know uh, or, or, or sticking with the dealer uh, that they get on well with and having to swap to a different product. Um, but I, I guess the waters get smoothed over time. Um, it, it's a very brave dealer indeed that, that actually chooses to switch major franchises is, as my old company, uh, which are CNO Tractors, of course, after 40 or 50 years representing what was initially Ford Tractors, uh, at CNH, uh, decided themselves to switch to uh, Agco. And uh, that's, uh, that would take a very brave, brave move, I guess. Yes, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yes, to actually instigate something that's going to cause you headaches <laughs> must be uh, must be a hard decision to come to. Um, and I guess to some extent, uh, that's a case in point that that Lister Wilders have taken a you know very interesting strategic decision to go with uh, Kubota uh, and as a result drop the agco business all round. So that, that was an intriguing one. And I suppose the one standout uh, entry is the number one entry in your in your list, and that is the only uh, dealership or uh, dealership group that is owned by a manufacturer. And it is rather odd that there are no others, are there? Yeah, I think, um, we, I mean, we've seen over the years, uh, I think a case at one time, if I remember correctly, owned a couple of its dealers. Uh, we have uh, Manitou uh, recently bought a dealership in the uh, Midlands, if I remember rightly. Uh, I don't think it's something that manufacturers generally like to do. They've got enough on their plate uh, to finance the whole process of designing and engineering and manufacturing and distributing the products that they do uh, to then be involved directly in the, in the dist- you know, uh, local distribution level. But uh, there are strategic reasons sometimes where that is uh, deemed to be necessary. And I understand that is the case with the class uh, dealerships that you you mentioned. Um, They individually are quite substantial on their own, but collectively as 100% um, uh, subsidiaries of class UK, uh, I felt that made it a sort of single entity in that sense. And so um, with something like £155 million of turnover in 2020, um, they are currently the largest retail organisation, if you like, in the country. So I thought that was interesting. And of course, that arrangement does date back quite a long way when uh, Class decided to acquire some dealerships in order to protect its uh, brand in certain regions and uh, and eventually held on to them, of course, and and, and, and appear to be doing quite well. Um, yeah. Because your figures, uh, Peter, are based obviously on turnover. Um, it would be too much too complex to to look at profitability and 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 so on. Did you ever think that you, that might be a route you might go down? Well, attempting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, the, the turnover is quite a sort of benign figure in some respects, isn't it? Um, uh, and uh, an, an indication of scale, and definitely not an indication necessarily of of profitability. Um, I thought for this particular exercise, I wouldn't go down that route. Um, sometimes it can be a bit difficult to tell uh, whether you're comparing 
you know, profitability like for like. There are so many different ways of expressing it, aren't there? So I was just going to say one thing I did notice is that um, pretty much with only, I think, one or two exceptions, all the dealerships were reporting uh, a profitable uh, year in 2020. Some uh, were with uh, less profits and often, you know, citing the COVID situation uh, as, as, uh, as being the cause of that. Um, one or two cases where they'd actually improved the profitability, I think, because they'd hit their costs so hard and they'd actually managed to make more profit and uh, improve their margins in some cases as well, the percentage margin. Um, so I thought that was quite impressive. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, but your general impression was that um, despite the difficult trading conditions, COVID and so on, that the sector, the dealer sector was overall uh, quite profitable. I know that's a very broad uh, description of it, but that there is profitability and profit to be made out of running a dealership at the moment. Yes, that certainly seems to be the case. Um, there, were, there were one or two uh, of the dealerships were managing to achieve surprisingly high uh, margins, uh, certainly a lot higher than the majority, I would say. So that's uh, an interesting one to look at in terms of how are they achieving that in terms of managing the business and perhaps um, the way that they manage, I don't know, their sales force or something or other, uh, and not to give too much um, away when the dealers are after a keen deal. Peter, you you write on matters, uh, machinery matters, uh, outside the UK and in in other markets. Uh, do you have any sort of thoughts on the comparison between the UK market and either European or American, North American markets in terms of the dealerships and the, and the direction of travel? Um, yes, yeah. They, as you say, I, I write in particular for a, a dealer trade uh, publication out in the states, which I find quite interesting because that's you know a, 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 such a vast market. The numbers of tractors they sell there when you when you uh, see the figures is quite extraordinary. But then, of course, if you take the whole of Europe, um, it's broadly similar, I guess, as opposed to individual country markets. But yeah, they're, they're certainly going through some similar processes, uh, often driven by manufacturer policies in terms of acquisitions and you know the other changes that we've talked about in terms of territory allocations. Um, uh, but in terms of scale, perhaps that's an interesting one. I did look up one or two figures before I came on, Chris, because I thought you'd be interested to, to hear them. Um, and um, dare I mention it, in uh, uh, Russia, the largest John Deere dealer out there in 2020 achieved turnover of about £203 million, which was uh, obviously beats the Class UK 155 retail figure. So that's quite a significant scale there. Royal Resync, based in the Netherlands, has operations within the Netherlands, obviously, but also in Germany, Kazakhstan, and even Canada, where they're the largest class dealership in, indeed, in yes. North America, which mm. is quite interesting. And um, just a couple more examples, uh, and then I'll shut up and let you ask something else. Um, but um, there's an interesting organisation in uh, in Scandinavia, Danish Agro, who in 2015, they're, they're a general farm supply company again, farm trader. They decided to get into the machinery market in 2015, which is not long ago. 
In 2016, they managed uh, in the order of 188 million turnover. 2020, that had grown to 536 million. And uh, 2021, 635 million pounds, largely through acquiring other businesses um, within Scandinavia. Um, so that's an extraordinarily impressive growth program. Um, so hopefully they can manage it. But you asked about the North American market, and, and there are some very, very big dealers. There are, there are about 25 dealers over there with more than 20 branches, yeah. uh, which must take some managing. Um, and, and certainly one of the biggest would be Titan Machinery, yeah. which incidentally also has uh, operations in Germany, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, and also Ukraine. And their turnover in 2020 was uh, a billion pounds. So that's a very big operation. And I think the other thing that I find interesting about those uh, those businesses is that they're not just operating anymore in their home territories. They have seen the opportunity to go international, take their expertise overseas and cooperate with manufacturers there. So Maybe at some stage, um, or maybe they're already doing it, they'll be knocking on some UK dealers' uh, front doors to ask if they might be interested in a sale. And, and there is, uh, is there not, um, external money, venture capital, and a, a number of those groups are publicly quoted uh, on the stock exchange in, uh, in, in North America, I understand. Yes, that's correct. Certainly Titan Machinery is, and uh, I think there are, there are others uh, in uh, the States and in Canada um, where there does seem to be, um, you know, greater uh, opportunities for raising capital through the markets in that way, and as you say, uh, a lot of private equity inter- interest as well. Um, just coming back to the UK for a moment, Peter. Um, there's been a rash of acquisitions and mergers and so on. Um, have we reached any kind of plateau? We are only a small country compared with North America, of course, or or some of mainland Europe. Um, have we reached a plateau um, of available dealerships? Did you get any impression from that you were doing that there still might be a lot of business being done to uh, further um, add to this uh, consolidation? I think that's that's pretty likely. Whether we'll see it at the same pace and scale that we have over the last 10 years or so uh, is a matter for conjecture, really. I think there are still one or two tensions out in the marketplace in terms of what might be perceived as clashing franchises within individual dealers, not necessarily for tractors, but for other products, certainly. Um, so I think there will be some changes there. And I guess... There will be entrepreneurial dealers who would like to further expand uh, and get a little bit further up the list of, uh, of those list. biggest dealers on my list. Yeah, it'll be a competition now. Um, it will. <laughs> I suppose the other the, the other question mark is there room in the UK market for any other new entrants um one's obviously thinking of um, from the from the indian subcontinent uh, mahindra and, and so on but they would be very difficult to set up under their own brand over here and i suppose the other question is um consolidation between manufacturers there's always talk it might be bar talk about who's going to take over who and uh, Kubota is often mentioned as being obviously uh, getting into a, a much greater long line uh, entity than it is at the moment any thoughts on that I, I think the opportunities for manufacturer consolidation are pretty few and far between now um, 
in terms of what might be allowed by the competition authorities alone. I mean, we've, you know, we've already seen tremendous consolidation. And uh, I, I don't say there'll be the odd, the odd case where, uh, you know, a manufacturer has gaps in its product line that it wants to fill. But if you think of the, the top operators now, they all have a very full line of products. Um, so I think that that opportunity is, is pretty slim. You mentioned about new brands coming in. Uh, gosh, they've got a hell of a job to uh, re, you know, establish a, even a foothold. Uh, the, the, the brands that are operating in the UK are incredibly strong. They have a very, very loyal and consistent following. And um, and beyond that, for any of the smaller manufacturers to try now to pick up larger, very professional, very successful dealerships, I think it's become even harder because the biggest ones are already getting bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, they they will need to exist with a very, very successful large manufacturer to keep that business going, I would have thought. Yes, and and it was interesting uh, when I uh, talked to David Withers, who runs Iseki or Iseki UK. He was saying to me they do have bigger tractors that they could bring into the UK, but in fact they prefer to be a niche player, off, offering a niche opportunity, particularly for dealers, because um, outside all the big dealers that you you, you identified, um, and you said there are two hundred or maybe on your original list there are an awful lot of dealers now without a main franchise as we as we know it who are looking for business opportunities aren't they well that's right yeah and i think it makes a lot of sense for uh, people as you say like Iziki, to um to, to look at the the niche you know where where can they you know sell uh, not necessarily large numbers of tractors but sufficient tractors to make it worth worth their while and, and I, I sometimes question whether some of the smaller dealers uh, really need to have a tractor franchise and whether they wouldn't actually be better off concentrating on selling, let's say, uh, six big grass rakes rather than the time and effort that goes into trying to persuade somebody uh, to buy a tractor of um, one of the sort of lesser known makes, if you like. Um, they can spend an awful lot of time doing that and not really making much for margin if any once they manage to sell one uh, so look peter many thanks for for joining me today it's it's been fascinating i um you've tucked that under your belt now are you looking forward to next january and february when you can disappear into into the back room and start the research all over again which i guess will be in some ways uh, slightly less challenging because a lot of the initial groundwork of identifying those companies that would be in your list has already been done Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I, I would like to do a follow up, particularly with the situation where, you know, as I said uh, at, at the beginning, we have uh, companies that have acquired other businesses. Um, we know in theory what their, the scale of their business could now be, but it'd be fascinating to see the, uh, uh, the accounts for the subsequent year and um, see where they've ended up in the um, in the in the list uh, in the scale you know with with chandler's uh, looking at going from something like 75 million in 2020 up to 139 million um that's going to push them way up the uh, scale from number 12 in the current list Um, which if i can just mention chris actually um for people who may not have read the article uh, it is available on the farmers weekly website fwi for people who have access to that 
It's also on my LinkedIn page. Oh, is um, it? Yeah, Excellent. so people can go and I, uh, I will give a link a to those on the on the notes to the episode anyway, uh, Peter. So okay. uh, look out for that either on the Farmers Weekly site or on Peter's LinkedIn page, both of which uh, details of which will be on the show notes for the, this episode. So once again, uh, Peter, can I thank you for your time? It's been most illuminating. I, I think this kind of research, we as an industry are, uh, are lacking in a lot of market market research um, because even on uh, tractor shares, I mean, we have to go back two years before we can publish them in the UK for some arcane rule to do with the EU. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's it's a spectacular piece of work. One I know that's taken a lot of work. So so can I thank you for going through it today? It's been really terrific. I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, I've enjoyed it as well, Chris. And I, I was really pleased that when I sent all the dealers copies of the draft, um, and I was slightly anxious about how they might respond. <laughs> People don't always like to have the, their business figures banded about. But I actually got a really positive response from all of them saying, actually, that was a really interesting read. Uh, and there's been some terrific comments from people who have uh, uh, you know, read read it uh, since it's been published. Uh, so that's from my point of view. I've made all that time and effort very much worthwhile. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I'm uh, glad to hear it, and thank you once again. Thank you. That was, by any account, a fascinating insight into the amount of work that Peter put in to compile such an exhaustive report. And and it is gratifying that a number of dealers responded so positively to his findings. It will be fascinating to see who are the movers and shakers in the dealer stakes should Peter repeat the feature next year, which I'm sure that the industry would really welcome. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. And this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>